Welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. We are glad to have you here with us today. If uh, this is your first time, I want to extend a special welcome to you. I'd love to get a chance to meet you after the service. If you have some time, I'll be hanging out in the lobby back there. I'd love to talk to you, answer any questions you might have about the church and the like. Um, we count it as a privilege just to be able to gather together to worship Jesus. That's what we're excited about. That's what we want to be most excited about in our lives. Um, even more excited than when our favorite team wins. We're going to be excited about Jesus and the fact that he wins. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation. I like that. Whoever cheered, that was great. Um, that's awesome. I'd like to hear more of the whoop whoop or something like that. It'd be great on Sunday mornings. Um, turn your Bibles to Revelation 19. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through a lengthy series on the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 19. We are nearing the end. We just have three more chapters to go after this. Um, after that, we'll be doing a very short, a uh, couple short series and then take us into the new year. So let's read Revelation chapter 19. This is right after Right after the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb and that great celebration, now we see the antithesis of that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. This is God's holy, inspired word. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we need to be transported out of the daily grind to see images of you. 
We need to behold you in all of your majesty and your glory. We need to behold your ultimate justice. We need to behold the fact that, that Jesus, you are the one who is above all. You are the name above all names. You are the king above all kings. You are the one who ultimately conquers because you're the ultimate conqueror. God, we need to see that in our daily lives. We need to be reminded of that because so often, God, we forget Would you seal these images in our mind's eyes so that it would affect our hearts, so that we would live differently each day in light of seeing Jesus, the ultimate finality of your justice, your judgment, your rule. I pray, Lord, that we would live each day not for the temporary, but we would live for the eternal. God, would you give us your perspective? Would you enable us by your grace to catch these things, to understand these things? Would you enlighten us by your Holy Spirit? Open our eyes to be able to see. Open our ears to be able to hear. And Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to empower me to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, who doesn't want to be a part of a winning team or a group, right? I mean, you'd be kind of nuts if you'd like, I, I, I'll pick the losing team. You know, on the playground, nobody's hoping that the kids who aren't very good will pick them. Nobody's hoping for those kinds of things. You know, if I had a choice to be on the soccer team, picked to win the national title, or the team to be picked to be dead last, I think I'd pick the first one, right? If you were a football player, would you want to be a part of the Washington Redskins or the New England Patriots? Now, don't say that because you hate the Patriots, but just because which one's, which one's the winning team? You know, would you want to be a part of the National Ballet Company or the Pumpkintown Ballet Company? And that's no slight on Pumpkin Town. They're, they're nice folks. Would you want to be, you know, a football player in college for the Walford Boston Terriers? That's literally their mascot. I'm, no, no, I'm, not, I'm not trying to slam Walford. I just thought that was a funny mascot. The Walford Boston Terriers or, or the Clemson Tigers. Maybe there's a popular or trendy club that you want to be a part of or the popular gym or maybe it's a cool mom's group. Or maybe it's the cool workout place. Maybe you want to be a part of a prestigious school or university. Maybe that means uh, even changing your college essay just to de-Christian it a bit. Because, you know, that's a really liberal school. They might not accept me if I'm real. You know, maybe for those in business that's wanting to be a part of a profitable company or a law group, or a medical practice, because of what it might mean financially for you, or for your career, or your progression. Even if you know their ethics aren't exactly as good, they're, they're not as good as I want them to be, and I might have to change some things, how I do things, to fit into the culture there, because I want to get ahead, I want to make more. You know, it could be if you're a teen, like I, I was tempted by, I just want to be part of the cool crowd. Even if you don't exactly like the way that you, they act, you're willing to change the way you act to kind of fit in and be accepted. Could be for some, it looks like holding back from being an obvious Christian in whatever your setting is. Maybe family, you're hesitant to, to pray or to speak up when you get together at Thanksgiving. For others, maybe it looks like just not sharing the gospel or dialing it back a little bit because we live in a really religious culture. We don't want people to think we're part of that weird group of Christians, right? 
you know, maybe you're afraid of being a blatant Christian at school because you get picked on and or beat up or taunted in person or social media. It's better to be on the winning team, right? Well, the first century Christians, they, they were tempted by all of those things that we're tempted by today. Um, but maybe it heightened because they really faced persecution physically, financially. They really faced hardships if they lived like believers. The first century Christians, they, they heard of the conquests of Julius Caesar in the past and he would come in on this white horse and, and he rode the victor's horse. And, and so Rome seemed impressive and it seemed like the greatest world power and like it would never fall. And in their day, actually I have a picture of, of Caesar the Conqueror from a really terrible 60s movie. It's the only picture I could find that was like kind of okay, you know, because we don't really have any pictures from Caesar, just for those who are under 30 that, that didn't exist back then. Um, pictures of Caesar the conqueror would have been in their minds, though, this, this conqueror riding in a white horse. And then Caligula, he kind of tried to capitalize on that in, in AD 37 to 41, so just shortly before this book was written, and he, he named his horse Incitatus, and it was you know, this, this legend, and he, he planned to make him, according to legend, a member of the council. And the Roman government, it was the winning team at the time, and they were tempted to, maybe we could just get along with the Roman government, things would go easier for us as Christians, or in their local towns, they had guilds, or, or town, the equivalent of town councils at the time, and, and they had feasts, and so there was times when they would be tempted to, I'm just going to eat at this feast that's to a false idol, because you know, I want to be a part of the winning team or that social club. They had all the same temptations and challenges. People would think they were odd if they didn't dress the same as what was popular. They didn't use the same kind of coarse language and jesting if they didn't visit the temple prostitutes or get drunk. They would have stood out as weird for sharing the gospel for sure and they might have been beaten up. The church needed to see... The reality is that the winning team is not all of these things they see around them, those groups they want to be a part of, where they feel pressure to conform and, and fit in. The, the winning team is actually Jesus, even though it appeared, and sometimes still can appear falsely, as if Christians are defeated or the church is defeated. They needed to see what the true winning team was. They needed God to cut through the fog to, to reveal who's truly in power and who's going to win in the end. They needed to see the true conqueror, and it wasn't the powers around them. They needed that so they wouldn't be tempted to join another team or tempted to believe the lies that following it after another person or a group or being a part of a club, that's where their hope was wasn't about being part of the more popular or powerful group it was it was seeing who Jesus is and being a part of what he's done and what he's doing you know I'm sure they were accused of being on the wrong side of history like we hear today and they needed to see that wasn't true how they needed to see how history would truly unfold that's why God gives us all these images in Revelation. These images, all of these passages in Revelation as we've been going through are actually meant to be practically applicable I was telling somebody just the other day, I think Revelation is perhaps one of the most practically applicable books for the New Testament, in the New Testament today. And people are like, what? Really? No. All of these visions of who Jesus is and what he's done and his plan and how things will unfold, who the beast really is, this, these world powers, the government, all of these images are meant to affect us 
so that we live differently today, so we hear them and we keep them today. These aren't just esoteric visions of the future. We need to see our place with Jesus on his team as part of his victorious army, and that's what we have in this passage. We have this this glorious image of Jesus. Heaven's being opened up and Jesus riding in. And what's the the big thing that we need to see from this? That, That Jesus is the ultimate conqueror who conquers ultimately. We need to know that. When you're feeling defeated, you need to, where am I looking for power? Where am I looking for hope? Where am I looking for the future? Let's look up and see this Jesus is the ultimate conqueror who conquers ultimately. That's kind of the big idea of the whole passage here. Look, look down your Bibles to the first verse, uh, verse 11 there. I saw heaven open. This is, this is God kind of cracking open heaven and, and the curtain is coming back, if you will. It says, behold, a white horse. And there's an exclamation in your Bible because that word behold, is, it's, it's emphatic. Behold, a white horse. John is shocked here. I saw heaven open and a, and a white horse. This is the horse of the conqueror. Opening the way for this final act to take place. This is a conquering entry. This is the victor riding in, and he sees one who is called. Look at the names that this, this victor is called. Faithful. Why is it important that the church sees that he is faithful? Because they, they didn't experience in their daily lives. They didn't experience what looked like the faithfulness of God, and they needed to see that he really was faithful. He was being faithful to them in the midst of persecution. So often we can translate God through our circumstances. We can think that, hey, if we're poor, that means God's not faithful. No, that's not biblical. If we're suffering, that that means that God's not faithful to us. No, that's not biblical. Maybe if we're sick, that means God's not really pleased with us. No, he is faithful. He's faithful and he's true. The world, the flesh, the devil, they speak lies to us and yet this is the one who is faithful and true. We can trust him. The dragon, the beast, Babylon, the false prophet, they've all been pretenders. The world around is is pretenders. The beast, the the world systems, the the government. Babylon, the the, the ideologies of the world, the, the false prophet of the false religions of the world, they, they all speak lies and we need to see, look up and see Jesus is the one who's faithful and true. That's what we see in the verse, in verses 11 to 16. We see this, this, this Jesus who is the ultimate conqueror. I let my kids uh, listen to some, I got a, a birthday gift last month of a, little, uh, a, a, a record player and all my mom's old 45s. Um, from back in the 50s, and then I also got some of the old albums that I had, like in 1980-something, and they're terrible. Um, not, not because the 80s was terrible music, but the ones that I had were terrible. And because I, I, I was, you know, grew up in a Christian home, and um, I would say sometimes Christians aren't known for the best quality music. We need to, we need to, we need to improve that, by the way. We, we, want, we want to encourage Christians to be better at music. But so I had this old album called Carmen, <clears throat> and um, and I couldn't help think of it this morning. And you know, he is the champion. If you don't know what it is, go look it up. You'll laugh. But great lyrics because it's this war in the heavens, and it's kind of depicting this scene where Jesus is the ultimate champion. He's the ultimate conqueror, and the truth of that should affect us. 
He's the ultimate conqueror. Unlike earthly wars, when they leave this trail of unjust suffering in their wake, it's, it's in righteousness that Jesus judges and makes war. He's the righteous warrior. He's a strong champion. He rights all wrongs. He corrects all injustice. That's good to know. Everything he does is right. Look at, look at verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. They're like flames of fire. They're not literally there, but they're like flames of fire. They pierce, they penetrate, they cut through the fog. They, they, they cut through all the excuses, the subterfuge. He, he discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that's both meant to be encouraging and provoking. Encouraging that God sees through all the lies of the world, right? But also God sees through our own lies, our own deceit. It's meant for us to see Jesus as the conqueror and for us to see his eyes are like flames of fire. Let's live holy lives and not try to fool around and play church. On his head are many diadems. What is that speaking to? The fact that he's the ruler above all rulers. we, We saw that the beast had diadems and crowns and the dragon had seven diadems, and so it appeared as if they are the ultimate rulers. And in that day and in our day, we can think that, that the world around us, that people in authority are our rulers, that we can think that people in authority are what really matters, that, that we think that they hold the power. Maybe, maybe you are into politics. Maybe you're into thinking, that's my hope. Whatever it is, You need to look up and see that on Jesus' head are many diadems, kind of countless diadems. He is the ruler above all rulers. He's ruling over all. You know, you might think that somebody in authority over you holds sway, and you can pray to Jesus and say, no, God, I, I know that ultimately, Jesus, you are in authority. You are sovereignly superintending my circumstance and situation. Lord, you are able to change the circumstance and situation that I'm in. And Lord, if not, you're able to make me endure because you are the ruler who has diadems upon diadems on your head. No one controls you. It's this, this imagery of he has a name written on himself that no one else knows. Back in ancient times, they used to, to believe there was some magic to knowing the true name of a thing or a person so that you could exercise control over that. And so what we see here is this, no, Jesus, although he makes himself known in, in so many ways, and we see seven different descriptions of Jesus in this passage, he alone holds authority over himself. No one has power over him, no magic, no sorcerer, no demonic force. And he reveals himself in his glory and I love the name that he's called. Look in verse 13. He's called the Word of God. He's the Word of God. Look at how he's clothed. He's he's clothed with this robe dipped in blood. And at first you might wonder at this. What in the world is this image of this this clothed dipped in in blood, this, this, this robe dipped in blood? And it could be a couple things, and I think it's probably kind of both images are meant to affect us. His, his robes dipped in blood, perhaps this is his own blood indicating that he rides in as a conqueror with his, his sacrificial conquering blood. And it could also be a, a warning to all of his enemies that he, his blood is dipped in the blood of his enemies from treading out the winepress of God's wrath. In either case, Jesus is this fearsome warrior. He's conquered all by shedding his own blood and he sheds the blood of his enemies. 
His name, the word of God, is the same name that the apostle John wrote about in the gospel of John and in verse John. And he's the only New Testament author that we see this, this title used. He's the very embodiment of God's living, active word. Jesus himself is the word of God. John wrote in, in John 1, in the beginning was the word. This is, this is the one we see on the horse. The one who was in the beginning is the one we see at the end. What is that? What's John trying to draw his reader's attention to? The fact that, that Jesus is eternal. He's over all of history in the beginning, and he's over history in the end. The word was with God. The word was God. All things. This is the creator. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Where do we look for life? Where do we look to for light? Where do we look to for hope? Jesus himself is the very word of God. Who are you looking to? light shines in the darkness. Darkness has not overcome it. It might feel in your life like darkness has overcome. Look up and see that Jesus is the word of God. Darkness does not overcome him. If you are in him, darkness will not overcome you. There's no one else we should look to for true enlightenment. We don't need the false doctrines of angels or someone purporting to have something written on golden tablets. We don't need people with great oratory skills. We don't need a world leader, a president, anybody else to enlighten us. We need the word of God. He is the one who has the words of life. John 1.12, he went on to write, All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This is the word of God, the one who gives the right to become children of God. Who are born not of blood, the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. Oh, we celebrate the word of God. Become flesh. He's dwelt among us. He's, he's tabernacled among us. He's, he's lived among us. He understands us in every way and yet without sin. This, this vision of Jesus would have reminded them of where their true hope was. The true hope doesn't lie in circumstances, temporary relief from suffering, hardships. It doesn't lie in anything else. It's in the word of God, the creator of all, because he is the beginning and the end. He was there at the beginning. He's there at the end. He's over all of history. Even when you're tempted to, to wonder, is God really in control? What's going on? He alone gives light and life. We see down in verse 14, armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Now, these armies of heaven. Who are they arrayed in fine linen? Why does it mention that? Well, elsewhere in Revelation, we see that the saints are arrayed in fine linen. They're given the righteous robes of Jesus. And that's the picture we have here. It's probably a mixture of saints and angels alike. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, dressed in his robes, white and pure. And they were following him on white horses. They shared the victory of Jesus the conqueror. That was be you, Christian, if you remain faithful to the end if you overcome by placing hope in the blood of the lamb in the word of his testimony this is you christian the christians in that century needed to know that no we won't be defeated even if we die we're going to follow him on our own conquering horses and be a part of his conquering his victory and look at verse 15 his from his mouth this sharp sword comes out of his mouth and it's this sharp sword is what will strike down the nations and he'll rule them with this rod of iron, the scepter of iron. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This isn't the first time we've seen this sword striking down the nations. 
Revelation 2, Jesus, uh, well, actually, the first was in the first chapter of Revelation. He's describing himself, and then it's repeated again in Revelation 2, and this is the third one. In Revelation 2, he's speaking to the church in Pergamum. He says, you hold to some who have the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is the same sword. And so as the church, when they were hearing this probably in one sitting, when they're, they're listening to this letter being read originally in their church service, all at once, all the entire uh, letter of, of Revelation, the, the revealing of who Jesus is. And so when they heard, hey, Jesus is saying, don't listen to false teaching. Instead, repent. Don't, don't follow after other things. Instead, repent. If not, come to you soon, and I'll wage war against those who do not with the sword of my mouth. And so now they hear, this is how Jesus will rule the nations. He'll strike them down, those who do not repent and follow him. That would have had an effect on that church as they're hearing this passage read. It means Jesus means business. He won't tolerate anybody who claims that it's okay to, to participate in the indulgences of the world and compromise by going along with just a little bit of meat sacrificed to idols. In our day and age, maybe it's like those who call themselves Christians and they tolerate beliefs and practices in the world around us and they say that, you know what? We should be comfortable with a little bit of idolatry in our lives as long as we don't really believe it. It's going to make life a lot easier. And then it says, he'll rule them with a rod of iron. Don't be deceived. Jesus comes with this rod of iron. We've seen this before as well. It's a, it's a ruling scepter. It's, the imagery is of this rod, this scepter that, that a shepherd used to, to kill those who would attack the sheep. We have this, this king ruling and he protects the sheep. He dispatches all of his enemies. This is the conquering Jesus. He treads out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe, he's got a title written. Look down in verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written on there. And that name is meant to be a counter to the name that they heard because the Caesars claimed that they were king of kings. He says, no, I'm the king of kings. This is the king of kings, the lord of all lords. Your local lord, your local masters, they think they're in charge. No, I'm the lord of all lords. I'm the lord of them. I'm the king of Caesar. I'm the king of every other lord. I am the king over your president, I am the king over your boss, over the people at your school. There's no contest here. You get the picture? This is, this is meant for us to see there's no opposition. There's no, no one who can oppose him. This, this is the final dominion of the risen Lord being revealed. Do you, do you know he has dominion over all things? Even today, when your life might be a mess. He's the king of kings. He's lord of lords. There should be no doubt about who's really in charge. There should be no doubt about who's the true ruler of your life. There's no doubt about who you can trust. No question of whether he's big enough or not to conquer your sin, defeat the devil, judge the world, set all things right. This is the conquering Jesus. The early church needed to see Jesus like this in his splendor, as the conquering king, the fiercest of warriors, against whom no one else, no thing, no power, no nation stands. This is the king of kings in whom we trust too. Do you see that? If you are with him, you'll be in his army. If you are with him, don't listen to what the world says. You'll be on the right side of history. 
in the end, Jesus is a victorious. He's the ultimate champion, the ultimate conqueror. And you know what it says in Hebrews 13, 8? It says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That image of Jesus should stick in your head when you're going through trials and when you go through difficulty, when you're in suffering, when you're experiencing persecution, when you are tempted to not speak the name of Jesus, when you're tempted to shrink back, you see King Jesus ruling, King of kings, Lord of lords. It's meant to instill awe, wonder, inspire faith and certainty in Jesus. There's, there's no contest. And the fact that there's no contest is seen in the following verses. The early church... The early church needed to see these things. Why did they need to see Jesus ruling overall? Well, remember way back, way, way back, back at the beginning of the year, we went through the, the seven churches that this book was written to, that this revelation was given to, churches to practically hear and apply this. Church in Ephesus, and in, in chapter 2, verse 4, the church of Ephesus, they had good doctrine, but they abandoned their first love and they needed to see Jesus as the conqueror. Why? Because in every passage he speaks to all seven churches and he says to the one who conquers, to one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I'll grant the tree of life is what he says in, to the church in Ephesus. In Smyrna they were tempted because they were experiencing tribulation and poverty. They were poor. He says, I know, I know your situation. Everybody around says you're poor, there's something wrong with you, but know you're really rich. Don't give up. Be faithful unto death. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The church is the one who conquers. Why do they need to see the conquering Jesus? The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The third church, Pergamum, they were tempted to compromise, to give in just a little bit, to eat food, sacrifice to idols, to, to take money like Balaam did to prophesy against God's people, to do things that went against God. And he says, to the one who conquers, I'll give him some of the hidden manna. Here, here's what we receive, church. The one who conquers, I'll give the tree of life. The one who conquers, he won't be hurt by the second death. The third, church, the one who conquers, I'll give him some of the hidden man. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on Nobody knows except the one who receives it. Thyatira, they were tempted by Jezebel, the spirit of, of sexual immorality by compromising, giving in to the world and indulging in sensual pleasures. He says, the one who conquers to that church, I'll, who keeps my works until the end, I'll give authority over the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. Did you notice what he's carrying too? And I'll give him the morning star. Oh, church, we need to see the conqueror because the one who conquers, he's the tree of life, not hurt by the second death. We have hidden manna, a white stone. We have the morning star. Are you, are you getting the picture yet? Why is it important for us to see the conquering Jesus? Boy, the, the, church, the, the, the church in Sardis, they, they wanted a good reputation is what he's talking to them about. They were so concerned. And you know what? Everybody says you're great. You're impressive. You're this huge church. You're a mega church. Everybody says you're prosperous. You've got a great reputation. But you know what? I know the truth. My piercing eyes see through it all. And you know what? You really are dead. You look good. Got a good rep. But inside you're dead. That church needed to see 
He says, I'm coming soon in Revelation 3.11. Hold fast what you have. No one may seize your crown. So the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I will confess his name before my fathers. Look up in, in verse 5 of chapter 3. Before my father and his angels, he was an ear to hear. Let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia, they wanted to be accepted by the Jews, by the religious establishment. They wanted to be accepted by the acceptable religion of the world. And, and they wanted to get along with them. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Don't, don't give in to looking like that, living this false outward religion. I want you to live for me because truly I'm going to have you put a place in my temple where you're going to last and live forever. The seventh church, Laodicea, they were comfortable. Maybe you can relate there. They were comfortable. They were lukewarm. They were really comfortable. They were really good. They didn't need anything. They had everything they wanted. They didn't really have any needs. And he says, you know, you think you're, you're rich. You think you're good. You're not. You're self-sufficient. You're, you're naked. You're poor. You're blind. You're wretched. You need to conquer he says, those who I love, I discipline, I reprove and discipline. In, in verse 19 of Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and, and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered. Don't be fooled, there's only one winning team. What are you living for? Do you see the conqueror? Does that affect your daily life? Are you abandoned? Have you abandoned your first love? Are you, are you disheartened because you're impoverished? Are you tempted to compromise? Are you tempted to give in to sexual immorality? Are you wanting a good reputation? You want to be accepted by the religious establishment? Are you lukewarm? Look up and see the conqueror. These are all practical applications that, that those churches would have heard when it uses the same language, the same imagery. Don't join the wrong team now because they appear to be winning. Don't think for a moment they're going to be in power. Don't give in to the lure of the world's powers and influence. Don't seek to fit in. Don't believe the lie that being accepted now is what matters most. Don't compromise. Be comfortable, self-sufficient. Don't be idolatrous. Don't leave your first love. Don't give in to sexual morality. Don't give up. Jesus is beyond impressive. His army rides with him. Will you ride with him? Will you be a part of his army? is interesting we see this this army that rides with him they don't ever fight in this passage only the king does we're part of his army but he does the battle do you want to be with him look to him he's the conqueror that's how we conquer not by faith in ourselves not by pulling ourselves up by own bootstraps doing harder being better we we conquer as we trust in the conqueror will that be you do you trust him in his leadership in your life? And then look down at verses 17 to 21. We see the second truth here is that Jesus conquers ultimately. Jesus is the conqueror and he conquers ultimately. I'll show you a picture for just a second. This is not Jesus, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Some people might think that is. That's not. Anybody recognize who that is? Just shout it out. It's okay. Chucked. That's impressive, Chuck Norris. Yeah, there's uh, all kinds of jokes about Chuck Norris and how great he is and how he defeats all of his enemies. You know, he, he doesn't read books. He stares them down until he gets the information he wants, you know. Um, there's no steroids in baseball, just players. Chuck Norris is breathed on. 
Um, you know, Chuck Norris makes onions cry. I mean, there's, ton, there's tons of Chuck Norris. I, lo- I love Chuck Norris jokes. They're really funny. It's a, he can delete the recycling bin. Um, takes you a minute. I get it. Uh, he, Chuck Norris can build a snowman out of rain. Uh, he can strangle you with a cordless phone. He can drown a fish. He can play the violin with a piano. When Chuck Norris enters a room, he doesn't turn the lights on. He turns the dark off. Um, he once had a heart attack. His heart lost. And he looks in the mirror. The mirror shatters because not even glass is stupid enough to get between Chuck Norris and Chuck Norris. Um, Brett Favre can throw a football over 50 yards. Chuck Norris can throw a Brett Favre even further. Sometimes people seem huge to us. Sometimes celebrities seem big. We want to be a part of those teams. We want to, we want to follow after people. You can put that down now. That's going to be distracting the rest of the time. Um, <laughs> We, we have this imagery in our heads of what's really impressive and we make more out of it than was reality and we fail to see Jesus is far more impressive and not, not only is he far more impressive, he's faithful, he's true, he's, he's the genuine thing. Chuck Norris has nothing on Jesus. No one in history has anything on Jesus. No one in your life has anything on Jesus. No circumstance, the devil, situations, persecution, trials, hardships, sickness, they don't have anything on Jesus. He's the ultimate warrior. And look at this declaration. The, the battle hasn't started yet. And look, this, this, this army's riding in. We're, we're riding in. The saints are riding in behind Jesus on this white horse. And look down your Bible in verses 17 and 18 there. This angel, he comes, and it's this glorious picture. You see, John's looking. He sees heaven open up. And then he looks over, and you see, he sees the sun. And standing in front of the sun is this, this angel. And his, these flames are behind him. This is this graphic, very dramatic scene Better than a blockbuster movie, this angel appears standing a sun, and he cries out with this loud voice, and he calls in the birds of the air. All these birds of prey, the, the birds of carrion, and he calls them all in. The battle hasn't started yet, and he's calling them in and saying, get ready. Get ready, because here's what's coming. The white horse is ridden in, and he calls the birds of the air. It's, it's dramatic foreboding. He invites the angels, look down your, in your Bible in verse 17, 18, says, he invites the, the birds to a grisly feast on the flesh of all who gather to do battle against Jesus. Don't think for a moment that anything you face can truly stand before Jesus. And if you're here last week, this is a stark and a gruesome contrast to the feast that we saw last week in the first half of chapter 19. If you are in Jesus, you'll be invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb and this glorious supper of God where we are invited to to eat and drink and participate in celebrating our union with Christ, this wonderful wedding feast. And yet we see the complete opposite here that if you are not a part of his bride, the birds will feast on you. Doesn't matter the station of life, whether rich or poor, famous or unknown, kings, or modern terms, presidents, prime ministers, high ranking rulers, those in authority, leaders, followers, those free to live as they want, or those who are slaves. It doesn't matter. The playing field is leveled. All will participate either in the feast of the Lamb by responding to God's invitation, His call, or they'll participate unwillingly in this 
great supper of God where their own flesh will be eaten. Not just killed, but the birds will desecrate them, dishonor them instead of being buried. The creatures of nature will participate in carrying out God's judgment on mankind who's corrupted nature with sin. Back in the 60s, there was a scary movie that scared me like crazy in the 80s when, uh, called The Birds. This is far worse. God using nature to carry out vengeance. This mighty angel gives this horrifying invitation to the birds of the air. John looks out, he sees the beast, the kings of the earth. It's the same imagery that we saw back in, in, in chapter 16. We had a little Paul's button placed on, a, on the story after that. If you know, Revelation doesn't happen chronologically. But in Revelation 16, all of the armies of the beast gather, all the kings of the earth gather. They all gather to fight in the plains of Armageddon, wherever this might be. Literally, they gather together to make war. Look in verse 19. Their armies were gathered to make war against him, sitting on the horse and against his army. And then you're anticipating the details. You know, we want this battle for Helm's Deep to be played out in the passage here. If you don't know what it is, it's the second Lord of the Rings book. Anyway, there's no fighting though. In fact, the beast and his armies of the earth, they don't inflict any damage at all. Look, immediately, all these armies, they gather, and then what has happened? All of a sudden, the beast is captured, the false prophet's captured, he deceived the world, and, and the whole world, and he's just easily captured, and they're thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. As soon as it started, Armageddon is over immediately. The beast and the false prophet are captured, and look what happens to all the rest in the battle. Look down your Bibles, look, look to see. What, what's the action here? Who's fighting in verse 21? Who, who fights? The only one fighting here, and it's not even fighting, is King Jesus. And he slays them all with the sword of his mouth. And this is figurative. We're not meant to think literally that a sword comes out of his mouth. But his, his, his words are so powerful. It's like a sword it cuts all of his enemies down. He speaks and it's done. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. The only one fighting is King Jesus. He's the one who fights the battles. And he fights with his mouth, with his mouth while sitting on his horse. It doesn't take a great deal. He's already conquered He's already come riding in as the conqueror with he conquered by shedding his own blood. And one day he'll conquer all with just speaking words, eradicating all who do evil, throw the beast, the false prophet, into hell. I was reading an account about the atrocities that happened in Croatia and Serbia when Slobodan Milosevic when he did horrific atrocities that paralleled Hitler or maybe worse. One author was writing, what does the church in Croatia need? They need to see this image in Revelation. Why? So that they don't take vengeance themselves. So they can see that Jesus ultimately will take vengeance and we can say, you know what? That, That desire for us to see wrongs righted, that desire for us to see vengeance on on injustice and the grossness that we see in the world around us, we can say, no, God, vengeance belongs to you and you do far more than we could ever. 
And then it should make us step back and, and, and see God's holiness that, that really we deserve that vengeance. The only reason we escape is we respond to the call. We respond to his invitation, to his wedding feast. And either we will respond to his call and experience the wedding feast of the Lamb in the first part of Revelation chapter 19, or if we do not repent and believe, place our faith in him, we will be feasted upon. It kind of simplifies life down a bit to what's really most important. Trusting in our victor, the one who's given the victory, knowing where our future is, that it's secure. And if we have that image of Jesus in our daily lives, you'll be able to weather difficulties. If you are transformed by renewing your mind with this imagery of Jesus, then when you face sickness and cancer and when you are dying, you can say, no, Cancer doesn't win. Jesus does. When you are facing financial difficulties, instead of panicking, you can say no. Poverty doesn't win. Jesus does. When you have persecution, when, you, when you're tempted to, to not speak up for Jesus, when you're tempted to not share the gospel, no. That person behind the cash register, that family member who hates Christians, they don't win. Jesus does. I want to live for him in my daily life. In every area of life, I want to live for the one who's rescued me. I want to live for the one who's invited me to his wedding feast and what a great feast that is. And I get to be with him and experience him here and now. And as, I, as the Spirit enables me and he gives me a, a, a piece, a foretaste of the victory that Jesus already has, because of Jesus, I can, I can live in the midst of these things as, as in Romans 8, it says, you know, in the midst of when we are naked and when we are facing the sword, we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus the conqueror. There's no contest whatsoever. There's no one else to live for. There's no one else worth living for. There's no eternal picture greater than the one of seeing. Not only will we feast with God at his wedding feast, celebrating, but we'll also ride in his victory. And right now, we've already received that. As Paul tells us, we already are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Because that's where our lives are hid. Let that affect your daily lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father... Thank you for giving us this picture of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for conveying this picture to the angel who gave this to John. John, um, God, we are thankful for the gift that John was in writing this down for us. God, thank you for your word that is powerful, that's sharper than two-edged sword, that, that affects us. Thanks for this vivid imagery, Lord, that you don't leave us with dull pictures of you, but you give us vivid imagery of you to captivate our imagination so that we are captivated by you every day. God, may we be captivated by you, by your victory, by the fact that you are the conqueror who conquers ultimately. May that affect us each and every day when we're tempted to give in or give up. Would you give us faith and hope in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for um, being a part of the church. Thank you for loving the bride of Christ. Thank you for living for what matters. Encourage you to find somebody else and share. Hey, when, when I saw those pictures, here's what affected me. Here's how I want to live for Jesus today. Share that with somebody today. Um, cross current. We will see you tonight. Youth, parents, um, we'll see you tonight. And everybody else, uh, see you in care group this week. Thanks very much. You are dismissed.